All right. Um, exciting day as uh, we look at uh, Acts chapter 19. So this morning, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts 19. And if you are uh, turning there, if you don't have a Bible in the chairs before you, around you, there should be some Bibles. So welcome to Regeneration Church. Uh, my name is Matt, and um, I'm the lead pastor here. And, and um, I'm blessed that when it comes to the work of the ministry, this morning as we consider Acts chapter 19, um, those that are pastors or people that are um, you know, involved in, in full-time Christian work, uh, we don't do all of the work of the ministry. All right? Our role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry because we're all ministers of the gospel. And one of the things that we're going to see today is as we look at Acts chapter 19, we're going to realize we have no power to do the things that God has called us to do, nor do we even want to. Nor do we even care about those things unless God's Spirit is working in our lives. And so this morning, uh, in Acts chapter 19, um, just reviewing a couple of things here. Remember that uh, Paul just came through his second missionary journey. Uh, he's about ready to start on his third missionary journey. They kind of regroup in Antioch, and, and he leaves uh, Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth. And then Paul goes on to Ephesus. And um, last week, we just briefly touched on this. I wanted to share just something else in regards to um, the ministry of Aquila and uh, Priscilla, that their marriage was a marriage that the end, what, what's the end game? Uh, let me just ask you this. If you're single, maybe you're thinking, well, I can't wait to get married. I, just, I can't wait. If, if I am married, my life is fulfilled and everything will go. I mean, that, that's the one thing. If, if I just got married, I'd be complete. But I want to ask you why you want to get married. What is the end game? What is the end result, the desire that's at the end of that and the purpose of that marriage? If you're married, um, what is your goal for your marriage? Is it, is it simply that your wife understands that you're right all the time or your husband understands that you're right all the time? Is it that uh, you have security? Is it that you have a, a sense of belonging? Now, all of those things are good, right? But the end game for Priscilla and Aquila is I see that they, they have in their heart as a married couple that they want to glorify Jesus. So it's not just to get married because sometimes if we think that that's our happiness and anything in life that you think that is your fulfillment outside of Christ, it, it will let you down because it won't fulfill all the way. It could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be um, a, a ministry. So for Priscilla and Aquila, they, they wanted to glorify Jesus, and they were on mission together. As a, a marriage ministry at the end of Acts chapter 18, remember that they were, they together had been discipled by Paul, and as they learned, they started taking Apollos aside and starting to teach Apollos um, more in depth and more accurately the things of God. So they saw themselves as a ministry team. And I, I also want to say this about that marriage ministry and, and just kind of encourage you as well if you are married. Sometimes in marriage, um, you know, as, as human beings, I, I think that it's an awesome thing to see that God puts two sinners together and says they shall become one. So it's almost like, here, here's two sinners. You're going to become one sinner. And uh, basically what we do is, as human beings, we, we get selfish and we get hurt, we get frustrated. And there are times in our marriages where, where we, we are still married and we still have you know, uh, kids and life, but we could get back to back. 
where we're, we're no longer, I mean, it, it's kind of like if you've ever had a roommate, like in college or a, a roommate to share an apartment, you might not get along with them and you live in the same place. You know, that back-to-back relationship, it, it's a hindrance not only to life, but to the ministry and to the mission of glorifying Jesus and experiencing Jesus. So that means we have to be able to forgive in every relationship, whether you're married or not. Um, forgiveness must be a part of not only what we believe in theory, but, but what we do in practice. Otherwise, that relationship is stuck. So there's times when we can be back to back. There are other times when we could minister along one another side by side. And Deanna and I have to guard against this uh, because being a ministry family, we can get busy in ministry. And we can get so busy in ministry as you can get busy in life and work that, that your relationship is all about, hey, we got to pay the bills. We got we to gotta check this schedule out. And when you go out to dinner, you're, instead of just enjoying each other's company, it could very quickly be reduced to plans and budgets and what do we do next. And, and that's not why we got married in the first place. All right? I, didn't, I didn't marry Deanna because uh, as an accountant, you know, she, I actually kind of did. All right, so that's... <laughs> But that was a small part of it. That's not like the only reason why I married her, so that she could, like, you know, do accounting for us. It, it's that, you know, we got married. It, it's a friendship. It, and, and then God wants us to get to this place where we have that intimacy and friendship where we're face-to-face. So we could go through life. We could get busy. But he wants us to have that relationship with one another where it's not just about the functionality of having someone else that can help out raising the kids or pay the bills or do the schedules. It's that we're, we're enjoying each other's company in Christ and enjoying one another. And by the way, I think that that's very important for our own walk with God because sometimes with the Lord, we could become very functional in our relationship with Jesus. And by functional, uh, I mean duty, responsibility, not relationship. And this is why Acts 19 is going to be such a great chapter to go through today. Because the ministry, the relationship that we have with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, it creates this joy and this friendship with God and this worship of God. And God produces fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He, he produces that in us. But if it's all about functionality and task and responsibility, then you know what? It leads to frustration and it leads to burnout and it leads to stress and it leads to pressure and it leads to a lot of guilt. See, God asks us to do some things that we can't do unless the Holy Spirit does those things in us and through us. So in Acts chapter 19, we are going to look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and to give us a little bit of background, um, it's important that in Acts chapter 19 that we realize this isn't the first place that it is mentioned. But let's go ahead and read this portion of Acts chapter 19, and then we're going to look at a few other verses in Acts, and then we're going to just settle in Acts 19. But if you would read with me in Acts chapter 19, it says this, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. 
Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So, as Paul is talking to these disciples, and he asks them, hey, um, he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Depending upon your background and what you were raised in, um, your view of the Holy Spirit, um, most of the time, it is kind of, and not just the Holy Spirit, it's kind of the law first mentioned. It's whatever you were kind of raised in. Now, there may be some of you that this is your first time really studying this concept and opening up the Bible and looking at this, and so that's awesome. Just take the, the word of God and say, okay, help me to understand this and, and teach me, Lord. But maybe some of you were raised in a tradition where the Holy Spirit was almost a taboo topic, even though the Holy Spirit is God. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is this uh, mysterious thing for the Pentecostals and Charismatics, and they, they are into the Holy Spirit, and, and we're not. You know, they're, they're really into the Spirit. And then you might maybe have been raised with a, a, pe, a Pentecostal or Charismatic background, and, and you think that those other people might not even be saved because they don't do the same things or think the same things that you think. Um, I, I remember when I was in high school, there was a, a cheer that both sides of the stadium would, would do. And, uh, you know, our side of the stadium, the cheerleaders on our side would start and they would, say, they would say, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? And point over to the other side. And then the other side would yell, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How? And there's this like kind of competition to see which side has more spirit. And you know what? Christians can subtly do the same thing. And, and Christians could have this attitude like, we got the spirit. Yes, we do. We've got the spirit. How about you? And, and based on a background of understanding and what you may have been raised in, you might even judge the other side as being either unspiritual or even affected by demons because of the things that they believe about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I just wanted to set that up and, and have us realize that the Holy Spirit is, is God. Um, he's not a force like on Star Wars. That's you know when I first became a Christian, that's how I saw the Holy Spirit, kind of like the force. Like I got to feel the force, you know. And and uh, he's gonna and and I I didn't think of it. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Uh, the Holy Spirit um, it says the Holy Spirit can be quenched. We could sin against the Holy Spirit. So when Paul is asking these disciples about whether or not they re- they uh, received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Um, this is something that I believe that Paul is trying to show them, that every Christian should have an understanding of these things. Now, let me just read a few scriptures uh, to you that kind of give the background. In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 20, you could turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. Um, it says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Um, then they had, been, uh, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these are believers in Acts chapter 8. They'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, um, again, this study is, it's not going to be as in-depth as it could if you just look at the topic of regeneration, which is why, uh, you know, the name of our church is Regeneration. It's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But know this, regeneration happens one time in a person's life. But the filling of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing process in the life of every believer. Okay, so these are believers, but then they laid hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Okay, so this is uh, Peter and John. Then you go to Acts chapter 10, verses 42 through 48. In, In this passage, as Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the message. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, it says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, speaking of Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and notice as they were speaking with tongues and magnify God. Okay, Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and they asked him to stay a few days. Now one other scripture in Acts before we rest in Acts 19 is Acts 11 verses 15 through 18. Uh, This is Peter's explanation of the Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles. He said this, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you, and this is Jesus speaking, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they again glorified God. So it's always giving glory to God. Uh, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. All right, now. The question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In Acts chapter 19, on this uh, missionary journey, as Paul is, is there asking them this question, he noticed something, there was something about these believers in Ephesus that caused him to ask them this question. Um, whether it was their discussion, and it seemed from their knowledge base that they didn't seem to understand the Holy Spirit, or maybe it was because of their life, there may have been something lacking. Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, one of the great controversies about this is, were these believers already? Were these people, were these disciples, Christians already? Two things make me say yes. One of them is, he says, when you believed, And the second thing is that they're described as disciples. Whenever the word disciples is used in the book of Acts, it's referring to believers in Christ. Okay, so that's 
um, when it's not referring to believers in Christ um, in the book of Acts, it actually specifies disciples of John or disciples of whatever that teacher was. So it seems that these were believers. Now, regardless of where you fall, because there's great Bible teachers on both sides of that that say these were not regenerated believers, some that, that believe that you know they were. Um, he asks them this question because I believe that the question reveals to us that if we have received the Holy Spirit, we should know. Okay, so I'm going to take it in a, a different direction. If you have received the Holy Spirit, then in the book of Romans, it says that you've been sealed to adoption with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit testifies within you that you are sons and daughters of God. And if I don't have that inner witness of the Holy Spirit, then I'm not trying to guilt trip you or I'm not trying to freak you out. What I'm trying to say is this, then, then you can have that relationship with God and be sure because it's something that's received by faith. When it comes to us as believers, um, the word Christian can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, just recently, um, there was, a, there was a man that was sharing at our pastor's conference over in Elk Grove. And he is a, a former Muslim that actually converted to Christ that has a, a church in Israel. Now that's pretty intense, right? Former Muslim, became a Christian who has a church in Israel. And he talked about how when Christians come there and, and they start to witness to people and share their faith, he said it's very important for us that we don't use the term Christian. Like we're Christians. We say that we're followers of Jesus because in the minds of both Muslims and, and many um, Israelis historically, when they look at that, the word Christian, Christian is synonymous to them of the, the crusades, of when, you know, they would, they would come in and there were battles, you know, between the Christians and the Muslims. And so they, they're careful in the words that they choose. And I think that sometimes when you ask people, are you a Christian, they might say yes in our culture today, maybe less in 2014 than in, you know, 1950, but there still are people that will say yes, I'm a Christian because I don't really fit into atheists and I don't really fit into being Jewish or, you know, a Muslim. I'm, I'm not really, um, you know, a Hindu. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. But if you ask them, have you, do you have this sense of God's spirit working in your life? And do you know him personally? And do you have that inner witness that you are one of, one of his own? Many times the answer would probably be no. So when Paul is writing to these, or he's talking to these disciples, and he asks them that question, I think that it's very important for us to ask those questions, are there evidences of fruit in my life? Now, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by, hey, if I do all the right things and, and, and act the right way, then I'll be saved. No, we're saved by God's grace. It's undeserved. It's because Jesus died for us on the cross. He took our guilt and our punishment upon himself so that we, can no longer, uh, we no longer have to be separated from God. But let me just ask a simple question. If when Jesus said, it's good that I go away, 
Because if I don't go away, then the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. He'll lead you into all truth. And there's this promise of the Father. And if you have received Christ and you have been regenerated and the Holy Spirit now dwells in you and, and you have been baptized in the Spirit, don't you think that you would know? I mean, it's not a thing of like, hey, you know, um, if someone smacked me in the head with a two by four, you know, and they just smack me. And then, and someone says, hey, what happened? Did someone hit you on the head with a two by four? You know, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know. I didn't really feel anything. I didn't really, nothing really happened. There's no, no bump on my head. There's no change in my life. And I'm not saying it's by feelings, but the fruit of the spirit, if, if there's not a love for the things of God, then I have to call into question where my heart is and where my position is in Christ. If I don't desire to draw near to God, if I have no desire for his word, if I have no desire to, to grow in my relationship with him, and I never have, but I'm going through the motions because I know what I'm supposed to do, then I just want to invite you, not as a guilt thing, but as a freeing blessing thing, to come to Christ and receive all that he has for you. Not only salvation, but when the Holy Spirit um, comes upon us, that we would experience the life that Jesus promised. Jesus said, out of the heart shall flow torrents of rushing water. Like there should be an overflow of my life when the Holy Spirit has come upon me so that other people that are around me, that they should notice that there's a difference in my life. Um, when we had uh, the baptism right here in the sanctuary, um, or even at the beach, when we have a baptism at the beach, one of the, the things that I love to see is someone that gets baptized come up out of the water, and then their loved ones or friends are there in dry clothes, and um, they just walk up to them and they hug them because they don't care if they get wet at that point. They don't care if they get cold. They're just so excited to celebrate. And so they, they walk up to that wet person, they hug them, and there's no doubt that that water is now on them. There's an effect of that baptism. And that word baptism, it just means to be submerged. If I'm submerged into the things of God, then people around me should see something. I'm not perfect, but there should be something about me that's different. There, there should be something about me where there's a love for things of God or a conviction of God's spirit. So when Paul said in verse 4, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let me give you the difference between John's baptism and what Paul explains to them a little bit more accurately. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Um, you're turning away from sin and things that are wrong, things that are against God, and you're being baptized into water, and you're saying that I'm, I'm being baptized in John's baptism. That's this message of repentance. The second thing about John's baptism was this. It looked forward to the Messiah, the Christ. So John was looking forward. He was, he was the messenger proclaiming to them the way of God and explaining that, that the Christ would come. So from John the Baptist and everyone preceding Jesus, you know, at that time, you know, Abraham, how was he saved? By faith. Okay, how was Noah saved? By faith. How was David saved? By faith. How was Rahab saved? By faith. See, these saints that you look back in the Old 
Testament, the Old Covenant, they were still saved by faith, looking forward to the Messiah that would be to come. And these are, these are disciples, these are followers that listened to John and that believed in the Christ that was to come. And what Paul is saying is that he already came. And he explains to them the things of Christ. That also means that they didn't have a full understanding of the resurrection. And they also didn't have a full understanding of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is explaining this to them. And then notice in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. As we've taught through the book of Acts, you've heard this before, that you know, there are three prepositions in, in the Greek for our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with the world, convicting the world of sin. Um, for those of you that have been regenerated, you're followers of Christ, you're born-again believers, do you remember when people talk to you about the things of God, how your heart was kind of drawn? You were curious or you felt conviction of sin. You know, you, you felt like maybe it was kind of weird or you weren't sure, but, but there was something there that, that was drawing you to want to hear more or to think, I wonder if this is true. That's the Holy Spirit with the world, with people convicting the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. But then when we become born again when we are regenerated as it says in titus 3 5 the holy spirit regenerates us uh jesus talked to nicodemus this way unless you're born of water and the spirit you cannot enter into the kingdom of god okay we we must be born again you must have that experience you must have that not only a head knowledge but a surrendering of self and asking jesus to save you and to to really come into your life and, and a trust in what he's done. Now, when that happens and your trust is in Christ, um, the Holy Spirit now takes up residence. We're sealed by adoption. I, I know in my heart, not only through scripture, but I know that there's an inward witness that when I pray, my prayers aren't just hitting the ceiling. There's an inward witness, and I, not all the time, Sometimes I go through dry times and, and you struggle through doubts as a believer and you go through difficulties. But, but really, there's that inward witness that I belong to God. The inward witness that, that he dwells in me and I'm one of his children. But then there's also this experience where the Holy Spirit came upon them. And that upon experience is when the Holy Spirit gives us um, power. He... Um, he helps us to do the things he's called us to do. Remember that Jesus, when he was, um, when, when Jesus spoke to them in the book of Luke, he explained it this way. He said, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. So after the resurrection, Jesus said to them that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now Jesus speaking to the disciples after the resurrection, um, it says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus 
breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. What happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's not a trick question. It's very, when Jesus says this, you know, <laughs> receive the Holy Spirit, he breathed on them, so they, they received the Holy Spirit. But he still told them to wait. He still, still told them to, to tarry because at that point in time, even though they had witnessed the resurrection and even though Jesus had breathed on them, he said, still, wait, wait for this. You know, wait for this, this the power in being endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus said this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. Again, there's that word upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So why is Paul so concerned for these believers? I, I don't think Paul real, says, well, you know what? They don't quite have the same understanding of the Holy Spirit as I do, so that's fine. They'll do that and I'll do this. He explains these things to them the same way that Priscilla and Aquila explain more accurately these things to Apollos because he wants them to understand and experience what God has for us as believers Remember that when Jesus told this illustration, when he, when he said, hey, if a, a father has a son who asks for bread, will you give him a stone? And if he asks for a, a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? You know, like your son's like, hey, dad, can I have some, you know, some cod? You know, and you're like, hey, look at, look at this. And then all of a sudden it's like this snake or this serpent or something like that. I think sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit in that way because we're afraid. Like, if I ask for the Holy Spirit, is he going to give me something weird? Is something going to happen to me? Am I opening up myself to be susceptible to some weird thing? No, and Jesus says this. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's what it comes down to. In relationship with Christ, is there a faith to believe and a surrender to receive? Is there a faith to believe and a surrender to receive? The Spirit-Filled Life, um, there's a book called They Found the Secret. And, and it's a book about, it's about 20 Christian uh, people in history that explain their own experience with the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they come from different backgrounds. Like Billy Graham is in there and uh, D.L. Moody is in there and Spurgeon is in there. And it talks about how even after they had become believers and followers of Christ, they had been regenerated, the Holy Spirit dwelt in them there was still a point in time where there was a surrender where they just were no longer afraid of surrendering everything to Jesus. And really thinking about the question this way, it's not how much of the Holy Spirit can I get? It's how much of my life am I willing to surrender and yield to him? Because when I yield to him, he starts to work in my life and he starts to change me and he starts to fill me with his love for people. He starts to give me a desire to pray. He starts to give me an urgency. He gives me a boldness. He starts to give me joy that even when I'm going through a hard time, I'm still joyful. He fills me with his peace. He gives me patience. He gives me kindness. Even when I don't want to be kind, it's like I start to feel this need to be kind to people. There's a self-control that happens when, when the things that I tried not to do, but I'm, I'm just drawing near to God, yielding to him, spending time with him, he begins to help me to do the things I can't do on my own. So do I have the faith to believe and the surrender to receive? And so for us as a church, I have to ask the same question to myself and to us. I know most of you are, are believers who have 
um, receive Christ and are followers of Christ, but, but would your life, would my life be described as overflowing? Would, would my life be described as being spirit-filled? When Paul writes to the Ephesians, which is a cool thing, he's in Ephesus right now, by the way, so later on, you know what he does? He writes a letter back to them. And that's the book of Ephesians that we have. And you know what he tells them in Ephesians? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the verb tense of that is to continue to be being filled. It's a command. It means it's not a one-time deal. It's a continue to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that that's an option for us. I could either be filled with the Spirit or I could be filled with myself. And believe me, it is uglier to be filled with myself. It is worse for everyone around me to be filled with myself. And when I, don't be afraid of of thinking like, well, if I give myself to the Lord and ask him to fill me with his spirit and I surrender to him, I'll be less of myself. No, you know what? You become a better self. You become a better person that God created more in the, in the, the way that he wants you to live. And you become a blessing to others. So, um, super important. That question may be still asked of us today. Have I allowed the Holy Spirit to come upon me, to empower me? Or am I still trying to just gut out this Christian walk? Am I still trying to just willpower it through and make it happen and just, you know, by an act of my willpower, I will become more godly? Because that's, that's a, a burnout, frustrating relationship with God. So going back to Acts chapter 19. Um, so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Um, this was a miraculous thing. This ability to speak other languages that they did not previously have. And they prophesied as well. They began, to, um, they began to proclaim the things of God. And as they did this, um, there were about 12 in all, they, they continued to grow. It says in verse 8, And then he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So Paul is now reasoning, persuading, and, and teaching the things of God. So for three months, he didn't say, okay, now you have it. Now that's it. Now just live in that filled position and just experience that. No, there was a constant growth, a constant reasoning. What is reasoning? It's, it's thinking. It's helping other people to think. Remember that um, in Isaiah, God calls us. He says, come, let us reason together. That's what God says to us. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Um, our faith is a very reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. And Paul wants to reason with them. And it's important to engage in conversation with people who have different views. Don't run away from it as though you're afraid that they're going to convince you and talk you out of it. If you can be talked into it, you can be talked out of it, right? It's, it's when you know that the Lord is real and he is um, living in your life. And there's no fear in talking to anyone about any belief system or where they're coming from. And he reasons with them. But then he doesn't just reason. It's okay to try to persuade people. In fact, if you are a Christian, you should try to persuade people. 
that's, that's not a value today in our culture that says in this postmodern world, whatever you believe, go ahead and believe that. And it's okay. We all have different beliefs and let's all agree to disagree and have our own beliefs. But if you try to persuade someone, oh, that, that's wrong. No, if I really believe that this is right, and if I really believe that this is blessing and life for people, I really believe that apart from Christ, they're separated from God. If I really believe that they won't experience the fullness of life that God intended, then I should persuade people. I had a conversation recently with this guy that it was, it was crazy to me. Um, he was talking about talking to young people. He's an adult, you know, probably in his 40s, talking to young people about, about drugs. And he's like, yeah, you know, because I just don't know if that's, and even, even talking about his own children and, and like his, his son's friends, he's like, I just don't know whether or not that's my place to talk to them about that. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know what? Yeah, that's not your place. That is your place. I think we live in a culture today that says, don't try to persuade anyone because then you're a hater if you're trying to persuade them. No, you know what you are? You're a lover because you love them so much. You're trying to persuade them in a way that they're going is wrong. You know, if my kids were out there, Dad, can I just go up that mountain? Can I climb that hill? No, you can't. Please, please, let me just climb that mountain. No, there's poison oak on that mountain. It's all over the place. Please, please. I mean, I'm not a hater by persuading them not to go on that mountain because I know they're going to get poison oak. And in the same way, when we look at someone's life and we realize, hey, this person is going away from God and their life is, is leading towards destruction and there's a lot of pain there and, and I know what they can experience, God calls us to persuade. And so Paul tries to persuade. And the third thing that he does is he teaches. He just continues to teach them the word of God as we're going to see. He's going to stay in Ephesus. This is probably one of the most fruitful times of Paul's life. He stays there for two years teaching the word of God. But notice this in verse eight. So he's reasoning, persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And then verse nine, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, in verse 9, even though Paul is doing an excellent job, I believe, of reasoning and persuading and teaching, it says that there were some, some were hardened. I, I looked up this phrase um, in its original language because uh, Koine Greek is very, very specific. Verb tenses mean a lot. So I, I looked it up, and what I realized is that this is a continuous verb that happened in the past. It's kind of like if you say, um, I, I used to be, uh, you know, I used to swim, like if you're on a swim team. That doesn't mean that at one day, you know, when you're eight years old, you swam. I used to sw- No, it means you continued to do that in the past for a period of time. This is the same verb tense. It says that uh, some of them were hardened. That means that they continued to harden their own hearts. And then the second part of it says this. It says, and did not believe. Again, this is the word apatheo from where we get the English word apathetic. It means they would not allow themselves to believe. A continued hardening, and I'm not going to allow myself to believe. I'm not going to give in no matter what you say. And the trajectory of our heart will many times make a difference in the trajectory of our life. If we say, I'm not going to believe. 
I just choose to, I refuse to listen to things of God, I refuse to listen to God's word, then guess what? Over a course of time, our hearts become more hardened and it becomes more difficult for us. So when they did this and they, they wouldn't be, uh, they hardened their heart, they wouldn't believe, and then they started speaking evil of the way. Um, not a way, it was the way. I like that, you know, our, our youth group, one of the, the things they, they call themselves is of the way of the way, not in the way, <laughs> you know, like they're not getting in the way, they're of the way. Because in the book of Acts here, these, these people were of the way. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth and the life. And sometimes people think, again, it's being very narrow-minded. Um, Josiah and I, a few weeks ago, we went down to San Francisco and we were trying to get to uh, the, this concert. And as we were driving down there, you know, it's all the one-way streets in San Francisco, and I'm seeing it on my stupid navigator, and my navigator is saying it's right there. My navigator told me to turn left. So I turn left, and I'm driving, and then all of a sudden, I see people looking at me on the, on the sidewalks, and I hear a few horns being honked, and then I look ahead of me, and I see headlights. They're all coming at me. I'm like, oh, no, and I just, I pulled into this alley because I was going against one-way traffic. Now, I'm, I'm not someone to say, if there's only one way that traffic's going, that's wrong. I'm just going to go against the way. You know, I, there should be two ways. This should be a two-way street because the theater is right over there. I just need to get over there. No, I'm going to obey the rules of that road that says, hey, there's only one way. And in the same way, when Jesus is the way, um, these people that spoke evil of the way, they're like, no, there have to be other ways. There, there has to be other ways. And so we're going to look for other ways. And so... It's so important for us, um, as with Paul, at times, hey, if, if someone is not willing to listen and it turns into an argument, let them know that you love them and just stop. Cease and desist. Just say, hey, you know what? We disagree, but I love you. And, and you know what? That, that's, I'm, I'm just, that's, if you want to talk about this more and you're willing to listen, but don't try to, like, like dominate them by showing them that they're dumb and that you're right because you don't you haven't won them even if you win the argument you've lost relationship and you've lost a friend and you've lost the ability to still have a relationship where you could be a witness to them and and i i especially am i'm talking to myself i am i am talking to myself i'm not like preaching at you i'm talking to myself just as much just with my friends and also with my own kids you know, it's important. I, I, I have to make sure I don't have to win every argument. I don't have to win every battle. And I need to be willing to admit when I'm wrong. And I don't have to be that one that wins everything. So when Paul realizes, hey, you know what? They're, they're not listening. He goes to this school of Tyrannus. And this is kind of like a public school. Um, and he goes there and he starts reasoning daily there. Since he had to leave the synagogue, he goes to the school of uh, Tyrannus. And, and I love this because um, he's just looking for anywhere where he could go and teach. Anywhere where he could go and share. Uh, I think of how uh, right now, you know, Westside Community Church, they're meeting at Bayview Elementary. They're, it's a public school that they're renting that public school. They're, they're meeting there at this point in time to teach the word of God. And that's what Paul does. He's just looking for a place to post up and to share. In verse 10, and this continued for two years. Now imagine if they took breaks. Historically, when you look at um, 
where he was in Ephesus because it was a Mediterranean and very warm climate. Uh, historically, they would take a break from two to three hours in the middle of their day. This is probably like in Spain where they have a, a siesta or a rest time. That was probably the time when Paul is, is teaching, but he sa- it says that he continued for two years. And the effect in verse 10 was so that all who dwelt in Asia, that part of Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Do you realize how fruitful it is to teach the word of God? How, how much that expands? How, how much just teaching other people makes a big difference? Now, we come to, uh, towards the end of this chapter, two more uh, sections. There are some very unusual miracles that happen. Now, this is kind of funny to me. It says in verse 11, Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Isn't a miracle unusual anyway? Like, it's a miracle. That's not usual. That's, it's a miracle. These miracles were so different that they were called unusual miracles. So when you read this and you go, you know what? That's unusual. That's weird. I agree. And the Bible agrees. This is kind of unusual. God worked these unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. Yeah, I would agree. Unusual miracle. Now, the thing about Paul, um, you know, Jesus, it says that people were even reaching out to touch the hem of his garment. Um, Peter, it says in the book of Acts, that when his shadow fell on people, people were trying to get to his shadow to, in their hopes that if his shadow fell on them, that they would be healed. Um, I really believe that in this case, it was a labor of love because those handkerchiefs and aprons, these are terms and words that are used. What was Paul by occupation? His a tent maker. These are like work cloths. So Paul is sweating. He is not like Elvis. He is not out there, you know, like wiping his sweat and then like throwing it to the crowd. Ah, everyone's screaming to get one of Paul's handkerchiefs. I think it's more like he is in a workshop and he has this, this he's like sweating or he has this apron like he's working. He puts it down and they keep disappearing. Like, man, I just, I left this rag right here. You know, I just left it right in this spot and it's gone again. I'm going to get another rag. And then the next day that's gone. And, and like people are just grabbing them. Um, another thing I noticed is that Paul isn't selling these things on TV. He's not saying, hey, you know what? If you just write to me and you send in money, I'm going to send you my prayer handkerchief or cloth and, and these are, this is different. Um, it's important that, that when we, we look at this, there are things in the Bible that are descriptive and things that are prescriptive. In the book of Acts, this is descriptive of Paul's ministry, but it's not prescriptive like an epistle that says, now when you sweat, wipe your brow with your sweat, fold it up in this way and give it to a person and let them touch. It, it's not telling us to do that. This is just a description of this, as the Bible says, God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Then verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call uh, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you or cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, uh, who was a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Now that, <laughs> that is terrifying. Can you imagine being in that situation? And they're trying to cast him out by, you know, come out in the name of 
Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then the guy looks at you and says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? You know, it's like, and the, the word there that's used is the word gnosko, which means to know by experience. Um, they knew of Jesus. You know, they, they knew of, you know, Jesus whom Paul preaches. But, um, I'm sorry, it's the word epistemi. It's to put one's attention or mindset on. The demons say, you know, we know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. And in a sense, because they didn't know Jesus, they were proclaiming Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not Jesus who has saved me, not Jesus who who has died for my sins, but Jesus whom Paul preaches. Um, and, And, you know, just coming after Halloween, I think it's important. In our culture today, it goes beyond just like a, a festivity sometimes where people joke about demon possession. And there are movies that come out. As a kid, Rosemary's Baby, I never saw it. It freaked me out as a kid. Um, just hearing about it freaked me out, so I never saw it. I, I never watched The Exorcist. But as a kid, I remember my brother and my sisters talking about the movie The Exorcist. And, you know, Hollywood can make stuff up and can kind of, you know, make stuff, you know, really different. But... I will say this, that demons are alive and well. And, and just messing around with occultic stuff is, is an open door. It's not the only open door, but it is an open door. So they were preaching, and we have no reason as believers to fear. Greater is he that is within you, that's Christ, than he that is within the world. Having dealt with people that have been demon-possessed, I I know that by experience that God is stronger, that there is power in the name of Jesus, and that there's not a reason for us to fear. Um, There is power in whom Jesus is, and and that's Jesus whom I know. It's not Jesus whom Paul preaches. It is, but it's also Jesus whom I know and whom I believe in and whom um, I have received into my life. So, there were all these weird things happening in Ephesus. There was a worship of the goddess Diana, which is the goddess of, of lust, really. So it was a super sensual, uh, sexually perverted area um, of worship, which it's here today, right? It is everywhere. It is all around us. It is on the internet. It's in people's pockets. It is so accessible. I want to encourage you. Um, don't dabble. And if you have dabbled, repent. And part of that is just sharing with another brother, if you're a, a guy or another sister, if you're a, a lady, just, hey, this is a struggle that I have, and just be in accountability and be in prayer and, and treat it as the sin that it is, but also just learn those ways to deal with that. Don't let that be the sin that is the, that thing that Satan calls upon as the blackmail card every time you try to lift your hands to worship or you try to serve the Lord and Satan says, hey, you can't because I have this. You know what? Just repent. Just get up and, and realize, you know, there's a book that I'm going to be taking, uh, I'm praying about taking some men through in, in the church here called uh, Every Man's Battle. The reason why it's called Every Man's Battle is because it's every man's battle. And... And so I think that we, we have to be, as disciples and disciple makers, careful not to have certain sins 
in the body of Christ that we don't talk about and certain sins that are worse than other sins that we say, oh, if you have this sin, then you're worse than everyone else. No, you know what? We need to talk about these things openly because that's how discipleship happens. Sin and condemnation and the devil love to work in secrecy and in the dark and in isolation. God loves to bring things to the light and open things up. And in confession, he loves to bring healing and restoration and accountability. And this is what I want to close with. In verse 17, it says, This became uh, known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Jesus. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. That confession and, and repentance means that we turn away from the things that draw us away from God and we turn towards God. Confession means that we share with someone else. First of all, confess to God. But secondly, I, I believe that there is absolute power in confessing our sins one to another. I believe that there is power in that because when you do that and you're affirmed by someone that says, hey, you know what? It's not the end God's not done with you. God loves you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And people walk alongside of you. Realize this, that God is gonna use you to walk alongside of other people as well. Remember last week we talked about a culture of grace, being a part of the body of Christ here at Red Generation. It's, it's important that we have this culture of grace because it's, it's biblical. So they freely came confessing sins, telling their deeds. And then it says in verse 19, also many of those who had practiced magic they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They, these books of spells, they didn't sell them on eBay so that they could get, I'm not going to use them, but I'm going to sell them on eBay. No, they, they burned them and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, which is equivalent today to about four to five million dollars. Um, so it says in verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So... Because of this, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Um, that means obedience to the word. God was glorified and, and uh, he was doing a great work. And the bottom line is this. Are you experiencing the spirit-filled life today? Are you experiencing that spirit-filled life today? And if not, the question is, why not? And this morning, as we close in a time of communion and prayer, um, just being able to pray for one another, whatever those needs are. Um, maybe it's a, a prayer need for a trial that you're going through. Maybe it's a big decision that's coming up. Um, but maybe it's a prayer that says, hey, I don't, you know, I want to experience that spirit-filled life. And I, I don't know that I ever have. I think I've had a head knowledge of what it means, but I've never, I haven't experienced that. Or maybe, maybe you're just going through that dry time. You know, remember when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, continue to be being filled. Continue to be being filled. And we're just going to have a time of worship over to my right and to your left. Uh, we'll have some, if we could have some of the ladies leaders and, and some of the men's leaders as well over there, just being able there uh, to pray with you and to pray for you. And then when you're ready on your own, I would like you to come up and take the bread and the cup back to your own seat. Realize this, communion, um, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says it's important when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we, have, uh, when we come to that table, 
that we don't partake in an unworthy manner. And what is an unworthy manner? It doesn't mean that you have to go out and have like three consistent good days and then you have a worthy manner. No, an unworthy manner is a, a manner in which we don't discern the body and blood of Christ. And when we realize that the body and the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin and you've received Christ as your savior, then come and partake and just rejoice in the fact that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by, by faith, by God's grace and believing that. And know this, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of what we're doing, because of what that represents. It's because Jesus died for our sins. So if you come and partake, don't come and partake thinking like, hey, you know what? I, I've been having a good, a good week, a good day. You know, I'm, I'm walking strong. I could partake. That in and of itself is the unworthy manner. A worthy manner is humbling ourselves to say, God, I can't do it. Lord, just I need your grace. I thank you for dying for me. I thank you for what this cup represents, the blood of Christ that has cleansed me from sin. I thank you for this bread, which represents Jesus's body that was broken for me. And then when you're ready, just go ahead and partake. And uh, we'll be over there to pray with you as well. So maybe on your way up to receive the elements, then maybe you would want to come over and, and just be prayed over. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much that you have offered this gift freely. First of all, Lord, the gift of salvation. Lord, the gift of eternal life. And Lord, we realize that you call it a gift because you are the one that offers it and you're the one that paid for it. It's free to us because the price has been paid. And so Lord, as we partake of communion, help us to do it in a manner that, that is worthy where we humble ourselves and we realize, Lord, none of us is deserving and we thank you for what you have done for us. And God, we're asking that during this time of communion, that you would especially draw near to us. I would pray also for anyone that has never been baptized with your spirit, Lord, and, and maybe they know a head knowledge of correct doctrine. But Lord, that spirit-filled life, they would have to say, that's not a description of me, not a description of, of my life. And God, we are all in that place of uh, needing your spirit's work in our lives. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would fill us. We pray this morning that you would, um, as you fill us with your spirit, produce that fruit in us that we cannot produce by our own efforts, by our sweat or striving. But it's only produced when your spirit does that work in our lives. And Father, we just want to say this morning, we surrender. Lord, help us with our fears of surrender to you, our fears of what you might have us do. Lord, um, we don't want to get ripped off and the enemy wants to tell us that we're going to miss out on life if we really surrender to you. But Lord, we realize that when we surrender to you, it's when we find true life. So bless this time as we partake of communion, and as we pray for one another, that you would be blessed, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.